Okay, guys, welcome back to the HPO podcast. This is number two, the Human Performance Outlier podcast. I have next to me Zach Bitter, a definite human performance outlier. He is the crazy guy who broke the 12 hours of continuous running world record in the American record for 100 meters. Zach, how are you doing today, man? Good, good. Tell me, I got it because I, you know, like I said, I just, I can't, I'm a strength athlete. I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a guy who, I want to be done within a minute if I can. Hell, I'm trying to break this 100, 500 meter world record. It's supposed to be 101 minute, 13 seconds. That's too long for me. I want to be done before <laughs> that. So you run for, you know, half a day or one. You're talking about running a 24 hour race. I don't think it's, it's it, to me that I just can't understand it. Tell me, tell me about when you broke the, uh, the, the 100 mile record. Tell me about that day. What was it? What was going on that day? Yeah, you know, it was it was interesting. I was still relatively new in ultra running. I hadn't done a whole bunch of a whole whole all that many hundred milers yet, but um, I had actually had just recently done a fifty miler. And based on my time and kind of pace there, I thought I had a a, a decent shot at being able to break the American record for a hundred miles. So I got invited to this event called the Desert Solstice Track Invitational, where people kind of target records either outright or age group, um, typically ultra level ultra marathon distance stuff up to like you know 100 miles or 24 hours are kind of the two go-tos there uh so i went to that and um you know that's where where i set that that record where was it where is that um it's actually in phoenix arizona oh, okay yeah they hosted december thankfully so weather's not too bad but uh, it's actually ideal some years you get like you know 70 degrees and sometimes overcast even so, so nice temperature not too much humidity and nice low altitude so pretty yeah. good place to to, to bust records i imagine it's pretty yeah good. yeah it's set up nicely and you broke so you said you broke two records that same day because you told me you were you before he was telling me that he ran the 100 miles and the dude said hey man you only got to go for a little bit more and you can break the 12-hour record and so uh you know my thought would be i'm going to run for 100 miles and not one step further but you <laughs> said ah what the heck i'm going to keep going so what, what was going on with that yeah, you know, that's probably what I told myself going into that day, too, is 100 miles and not one step further. But, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting with uh, with some of these timed events, you know, they're usually on short track loops. Uh, and this one was a very short track loop where it was on a 400-meter you know, high school track. So you're, you're constantly kind of playing mind games with yourself throughout the course of the day, trying to you know, break it into, like, compartments so you're never necessarily thinking of the entire race all at once because uh, that would just, just be overwhelming. Um, and it was really kind of a fascinating experience to me because somewhere around mile 90, the, the race director had come up to me and said, you know, your, your pace right now is solid enough that if you kind of keep going at that pace, you'll get to a hundred miles, uh, under 12 hours. And then if you keep going, you'll probably break the 12 hour world record as well. Um, and they were pretty delicate about telling me that about when they did, cause they didn't want to, you know, tell me too early, like at mile 75 and have me like start charging or something and then blow up. So they, they waited till around, I think it was like 90.5 miles. And, you know, the fascinating thing to me about it was it kind of like allowed me to separate myself from the goal I had been thinking about almost all day long, the 100 mile American record and kind of re-energize my, my brain or my mental capacity by having another goal to kind of go for. Um, so it was a scenario where like before the race director had told me that I was convinced I couldn't go you know, even a second per lap faster. Uh, and then when he had told me that, you know, I was able to, you know, speed up by somewhere around four seconds per lap faster. And it's pr it's pretty fascinating, like, event where they have, like, a screen set up so you can see, like, your lap splits, your overall distance, your pace, and all that stuff. So kind of working that through my mind was 
was pretty fascinating, especially after when I thought about how like, you know, in, in my mind's eye, I was, wasn't going any quicker. And then all of a sudden you get this new piece of information or this new motivator. And then all of a sudden, boom, your you know, your brain takes, your, your, your brain steps back a little bit and lets your body take over, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, you know, again, that goes in line with like uh, Tim Noakes talking about the central governor theory about your brain being the ultimate limiter to human performance. You know, I think it's, you know, what he's seeing with the same thing with the uh, world record performances, these guys, they're running as hard as they can, and for that last lap, they're able they're able to raise it up a little bit because their brain is kind of meeting out how much you're going to punish your body, knowing what you've got to do. So it shows that your brain can kind of override your body a little bit, and I think that's really neat. You know, I think when we, we talk about giving 100%, and you know that's a, that's kind of a kind of a figurative thing. Give all you got, give 100%, but you you really truly never can. You know, literally the definition of giving 100% means you die yeah. when you do that. So. I, I've never given 100%. I've given really hard, and when I've broken records, I've gone as hard as I think I can. But to truly give 100%, I think it's impossible. You give as much as you possibly can in that particular situation, but then, you know, your brain just says, "Hey, man, I, this is this is as much pain as I can handle right now," you know, mm -hmm. without dying. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's uh, it's kind of an interesting how the mind works on that stuff. For sure. And I think like one thing I've recognized from, you know, my running, my distance running background, you know, I, I competed in high school and in college and some of the more traditional distances like 5Ks and 10Ks and things like that. And, you know, those those are, are you know, a huge hurdle to get over when you're trying to maximize your performance. And as well, it's certainly a different type of pain um, or a different type of struggle. But, you know, it's all variables that you're dealing with. And when, when you lengthen the distance and time you're out there, certain variables kind of grow in importance or grow in like how much they're going to affect your overall outcome. And and I think with, with ultra marathons and as you get into the longer ones, that mental variable plays a much huger role because, you know, when I think about it, I, I look at my pace for the 100 mile American record, which is right about seven minute mile pace. And, wow. you know, the people, people will usually think that's pretty fast, but you know, when you really think about it, like there's a lot of people who could go out and run a seven minute mile if they absolutely had to. Um, and most people I think could train themselves to be able to run a seven minute mile if, if they had to. But when you're looking at like some of these events, like guys running the, the open mile and running like sub four minutes or three, three hours or three minutes and 50 seconds or something like that, you know, that's like a physical type of a uh, thing where no matter how mentally I willed myself, I'm never running a 350 in a mile. So to me, it's like there's this this kind of like uncertain terrain with ultra marathons where that mental approach plays such a big role that you can sometimes, you, you never really know if you pushed your body as far as you, as far as you could have that day. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, you, you didn't, if you cross that finish line in one piece, essentially. So just kind of always knowing like I can inch a little bit further, I can do a little bit better, or here's a bunch of spots where I made mistakes. Now, where can I go back and, and, and make those right next time? Or for me, the fascination with ultra marathons has always just been the curiosity of it all with the planning and stuff. I very much enjoy the kind of process leading into the race as much as the race itself. Uh, cause then afterwards, you know, whether you have a good day or a bad day, you're left with an experience that kind of guides what you're going to do next and gives you kind of a template to build off of or to build from as you kind of try to build up towards your next event. And, you know, that's the exciting thing for me, both from the, 
workout side of things as well as the nutritional side of things. It's interesting to see how kind of specialized we get because you're you're excelling at these super super long distances and say you know what do you I mean what do you think you could run a mile in? Do you think you could do four something maybe or what do you think yeah. you could do a mile in? Just, just, um, just out of curiosity. I think I ran a 440 in the past. It, it was like it was my senior year of high school or like a time trial before right before college. So I'm pretty sure I can get down that far because I really haven't exhausted that distance uh, in my prime, I guess. But So maybe like a 430 or 420s? Or yeah, like probably that. I mean, that's somewhere. That's an incredibly there. fast mile for any normal human. You know, Mile-specific guys are world records like, what, 340-something now? Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. yep. So, I mean, that's pretty – I mean, to me, that's pretty amazing, you know, to, to see – but how specialized we get and, and, you know, where we kind of find our little, you know, our little niches in, in, in performance. And so that's really neat. Let me ask you just a technical question about, because you're running around a track. How many laps around, you know, 400, so you're doing about 400 laps around that track, right? Something yeah, like that. 100 miles comes out to 402.33, I think. It's, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> .33 is important. Yeah, every lap is uh But let me ask you, do you run the same direction the whole time, or do you turn around and go the other way at one point? Because I would imagine uh, you start to wear unevenly running circles the same way the whole time, I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's uh, usually, most, most of the time, events on like a 400-meter track will switch directions every four hours. That's pretty standard protocol. I've seen some that do six, but uh, most are every four hours, and... You know, for me, like when I'm, I, I haven't really targeted a full 24 hour yet. Um, I'm hoping to later this year, but you know, for crazy, for me, <laughs> for, it's like, you just keep trying to go further and further. That's just like this endless approach, I guess. But um, yeah, so like for, you're, you're right about that. The turning does take a toll and it's just a different kind of exposure to your body. Like you're working some stabilizer muscles a little differently going around those turns like that. And you know, for me, if I'm doing a 12-hour, that means I'm going to be going one direction eight hours and another direction four hours. So definitely getting out on the track and training and kind of trying to hit those ratios on some longer tempo progression type runs, um, I think is key to kind of getting your body at least semi-adjusted to being on that environment or that terrain. So what is it? I mean, what? tell me, what is a toll? What is the damage that happens after one of these 100-mile crazy run to you drop type of thing? Tell me, tell me what the body, what, what's the physiology? Because this is... Again, this is outlier physiology. This is stuff mm -hmm. that very few people in the world experience this stuff. So what's what's going on with the body? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's definitely some some like a lot of like micro tears in your muscles, like loads of inflammation and stuff going on as your body tries to kind of respond from it. And I do think it kind of it, it does normalize to, as much as it can for something that is probably not advisable to do on a regular basis. <laughs> Uh, I know for me personally, the, I did my first 50 miler in 2010, and I could like barely move for the next five days. And I, I distinctly remember like is either the second night after the race, I was sleeping in bed, and I had to wake up and go to the bathroom, and it took me about five minutes just to get out of bed. Now, if I do a 50 miler, even if I if I really kind of like, go to the well, I guess so to speak, I'm I can walk around all right the next day. I definitely don't want to run or do anything like explosive or anything like that, but I can move all right. So some of it I think is just, you know, getting your body used to it, to adjust it to it. But more often than not, I take a protocol of like that, you know, especially if it's an A race, if it's not like an ultra marathon that I'm using as kind of stepping stone to another ultra marathon, um, you know, I'll, I'll give myself flexibility to take a complete week off, if not two weeks. And then, then it's just listening to your body. And, and that's where I've, gotten the most curious with the nutritional side of things with that is like, what can I do nutritionally to kind of speed that up or at least make myself feel, feel better in those following days afterwards. Yeah. Cause you said uh, you were telling me that you're like 
legs would swell up, your ankles would be swollen for, for several days, and, 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 you know, it's just, you know, all that inflammation. And, and, you know, I'm sure there have been athletes that have come down with, you know, rhabdomyolysis where they're, you know, they're potentially can cause kidney issues, you know, all that myoglobin plugs up your kidneys and can, can really take, take a number on your kidneys. You ever had any issues with that or know people that do that? Yeah, you know, you hear stories of, you know, pretty much everything at this point, but, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever done any, any damage to quite to that degree where where there's severe medical attention needed. You know, my kind of like, I guess, come to Jesus moment was in 2011 when I had really kind of gone all in with ultra marathons and I'd done, I think it was like 350 milers at about a nine week time frame. And I was doing a really high mileage training program leading into that. And I started noticing all kinds of goofy things. I mean, I was only 25 years old at the time. So like, you know, there was no reason why I should have been waking up three, four times a night to go to the bathroom. There was no reason why I should have like chronic ankle swelling and stuff like that. And, you know, that was kind of the catalyst for me to, you know, either like go one route, which would be reduce the training and racing to kind of, you know, not end up, you know, damaging myself permanently or find something else to tweak in my protocol to kind of make what I was doing sustainable. And, you know, I was, I very much enjoyed what I was doing. So I didn't want to, didn't want to stop the, the running and the, and the competing side of things. So I addressed nutrition first. And, and that's when I kind of switched from a more, what I would consider a whole food, quote unquote, healthy, high carbohydrate approach to a kind of a whole food, uh, high fat approach. And it, it was pretty eye opening to me in those first four weeks, like all those symptoms kind of going away, the swelling, the sleeping, the energy levels throughout the course of the day, all that type of stuff. So um, it didn't take really that long for me to buy in and then kind of go on my journey of like evolving within that type of an approach and kind of finding out, well, when do I, when do I eat this ratios of fats to carbs to proteins and when do I eat this? And, um, you know, it's all kind of a piecing together a puzzle of your own personal health and your own personal, like, um, you know, a plan that's going to maximize your performance and overall well-being. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I, I've found about performance. You know, it, it, there's a lot of things that go into that. How, how do you recover? How beat up are you getting? Uh, you know, what's your mental health like? What's your digestion like? What are, what are all these systems that go into performance? Because it's not just, you know, how you perform that one day. It's the whole package that comes together. And so, you know, you, you set these records as a basically as a, as a low-carb, high-fat, guy for the most part, right? Most mm -hmm. of your training was that way, but is that, is that correct that I understand? Yeah. That? Yeah. I was new enough to the sport where I hadn't gotten close to any type of records when I was still kind of following a high carbohydrate approach, all that stuff kind of came after. And, you know, ironically enough, it was, it wasn't until I had been kind of doing the high fat approach, uh, for about two years is when I really started to kind of feel like things were clicking from the performance side of things. Um, I think the fall and winter of 2013, you know, I was able to, you know, race and recover and, and race again and then kind of hit some training blocks in between at a frequency that I would have never thought possible earlier or I would have like cringed at the thought of like, you know, the other sacrifices that would have had to be made in order to make that happen. And, um, you know, it was, you know, for me, it was like, you got to be a little patient with it, but there are certainly things that pop up pretty quick where like, you know, like I mentioned before, like I started sleeping better pretty quickly under that protocol and energy levels were a lot more. Um, and you know, the way I always describe it is like, I've been doing a high fat approach for almost seven years now, but I still have 25 years of high carb under my belt. So I, it's always fascinating to me to think of like, well, what happens when someone starts that from day one and like, where would they be at when they're in their thirties if they were, 
you know, following a, a high fat approach as opposed to a high carbohydrate approach and how does that change the way your body kind of is able to utilize those fuel substrates um, when you have more and more, uh, you know, history within that type of a program. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a thing because most of the literature, you know, in athletics discussing, uh, you know, high fat or ketogenic approaches to athletics have really been short term studies. I mean, they really look at, you know, this three to four week time frame where there's a lot of transition and there's some thought that you, you, you know, your, your respiratory quotient changes where you're burning more fat than, than carbohydrates at that setting. But I think there's more to the adaptation. Was that, was your, was, because my experience was it took me many, many months to kind of really start to see true adaptations from a sports standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. just beyond the, the basic, you know, basic physiology. I don't know. Was that your experience that you found it took, took a number of months to really truly be really athletic adaptly adapted to the diet? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's one reason why, like, I advise a lot of people who are going to take it on to, the, you know, pick your battle appropriately. Like, don't necessarily flip that switch mid season or right before your big race. Like if you can start up when your off season starts and give yourself that flexibility to let your body kind of um, adjust when there's lower levels of physical stress occurring, you know, on top of the already stressful thing you're sending your body through kind of reprogramming its fuel substrates, uh, you know, is, is probably the best way to go about it. And, you know, for me, yeah, like you mentioned, it was, you know, I, I feel like those first couple, the first couple of years is where I started to kind of see kind of some of those uh, things start to really click and where I was, you know, really convinced, okay, there's definitely something to this. This isn't just some placebo thing in my mind where I like bought into some, you know, some program. And because I bought into it, I had the, I, you know, I had the ability to kind of like do better because mentally I was in a better place or something like that. It was very clear to me that there was, there was some definite physical advantages to, um, you know, being mindful of creating that very high fat base, um, using that as your primary fuel source and then only bringing the carbs back, you know, I, when you absolutely need them. And it's like, for me, like a carbohydrate is essentially, I kind of treat it the same way I would caffeine. Like it's something where, you know, a little bit or the right amount can give you that, that boost, that performance advantage. But when you kind of overreach, you're kind of, you're, you're burning yourself up. You're, you're hitting that rocket fuel button too many times and then eventually you burn as well. So, um, you know, and we see that all the time in sports too. We see people burning out and yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think, I think it has to do with longevity in your career. And I think it has to do with, you know, how beat up do you feel? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like you get, you get beat up less now that you're, now that you're not taking in so many carbohydrates or yeah. Can you you remember to compare it on how you were Mm -hmm. seven years ago or eight years ago? The way I kind of describe it is like, now I look at what I'm doing as something that's sustainable. I think like when I check all the boxes, right. And I don't like, you know, and I don't take too many liberties by, you know, signing up for too many races and trying to go to the well at all of them and, you know, try to, you know, train reasonably and respect recovery and then also keep my nutrition in check. Like I think it's something I can do for decades. And, you know, someone who's been really kind of an eye-opening, cool person to watch with that same type of philosophy is this guy named Jeff Browning, who also runs ultra marathons. He's, he's won quite a few hundred milers uh, and he's, I believe 45 now, and he was uh, third at Western States 100 uh, in 2000. Is that the big one, Western States? Yeah, that's a big, big it's, one. It's the most competitive 100 miler in the United States, and you know, arguably probably the second most competitive in the world right now. Um, and at 45, 44 and 45, he was third and fourth place overall there, and um, he had certainly had good performances before that. But if you look at like his process from going from a 
kind of a more of a high carb paleo approach to a low carb like ancestral like primal type approach um, to his diet where he very much used ketosis quite frequently especially in the early stages um, I mean he he's he's a pretty eye-opening example of like what happens when you kind of nail that program right and really and really kind of buy into it into the level where like you're not just you know, kind of half in, half out, and he he's he's been doing awesome with it. So, what if he'll come on the podcast? Then? He, he like, will. Well, oh, nice. we'll make him an early guest. We're gonna be good. That's <laughs> let me ask you because again, I want to I want to get into sort of the mindset of what drives. So, what for what two things? What sort of mentally? What made you decide I want to pursue this type of crazy? I'm gonna run hundred mile races and twenty four hour races and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, when did that occur? Was it something that happened early on? Did it come happen later in life? What 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 inspired you to? And then what made you decide to to play with nutrition and, and, and try out this low carb, high fat kind of approach? Yeah, you know, for me, I think it was a gradual growth into ultra marathon running. You know, I I was fascinated with running from an early age. I think I did my first you know, distance events, uh, in middle school and, you know, my basic, you know, as a middle school kid, you know, I think especially a middle school boy, you're always going to kind of gravitate to what you're, you're best at. You're not going to do something that you can get your butt kicked all the time in very, very often. So for me, it was like, do the hundred meter dash and get last or do the mile and win. And, you know, that's kind of clicked in my brain early. So I kind of was introduced to the world of running at an early age. And, and then, you know, throughout, you know, high school and college as I kind of learned some of the more specifics, the training philosophies, the methodologies of running and, you know, really got curious with the ins and outs of it all. I, I recognized that from an enjoyment standpoint, as well as um, just like where my strengths, I think, lay, were my, where my strengths were, were the longer events. So for 24 hours, like, is it like 170 miles? Is that like a top end about it? I'm guessing I'm just trying to predict yeah. how far that would be for like a really good performance. Would that it's be? it's interesting. Yeah, 170 is definitely a good a good start for sure. Um, not many guys hitting 170 right now. Um, the American record uh, is a guy named Mike Martin. He's done 172. Um, and uh, I just guess that. See, I'm yeah, guess. yeah. I don't know anything about running. He didn't do his research either, so <laughs> give him credit for guessing. Um, but yeah, the world record is actually this guy. His name is Giannis Curis. He's like um, kind of the gold standard for timed events in the sport, and he has what I would consider probably one of the more stout uh, world records in the sport of ultra running, and that's he went just over 188 miles in 24 hours. Wow. So. To kind of like put that into perspective, that's about a 7:30 per mile pace for 24 hours. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, when when you think about it, and you try not to if you're going to do one of these because it just makes it kind of <laughs> daunting. But just waking up and then saying I'm not going to go to bed again until you know this time tomorrow, that's hard enough. So now run 7:30 mile pace that whole way. So. He definitely set the bar high, but um, is that on a track, a flat track, or is that out in the trails and stuff like that? That was on a flat track. Yeah, I believe that was even a 400 meter track that he did the the world record at. But those things kind of occur on all kinds of short loop courses. Um, I think it's a logistical thing more than anything. Most of these timed events they'll do on a short loop, like you know, mile or something like that, where you have frequent aid and frequent access to that type of stuff. So um, most of them are kind of kind of short track loop type style courses flat usually too. <laughs> wow. So, so tell me about when you, when you first brought in the, the, the low carb approach, what was, what was going on? What, what drove you there? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like what I mentioned before, I was noticing some kind of irregularities that I didn't, didn't associate as normal. 
um, which I think can be easy to dismiss when you're trying to like, you know, push your body to the to yeah, this nothing, limit. Yeah, nothing's normal. You right, know, you, you start justifying yeah, exactly. like, oh, well, this probably happens to everyone who does this, or this is normal. But but to me, it was like, you know what, I'm 25 years old, and I don't want to, you know, feel like I'm 80 when I'm 40. So like, I I definitely was um i guess maybe i don't want to say scared into the approach but i was definitely like conscious enough that like something had to give if i wanted to you know keep performing and keep uh, uh preparing at the level i was and uh you know that meant a nutritional approach first and you know at that time i didn't know that if it was going to work or not for all i knew it was going to fall fall short and then i'd have to readjust into some other area but, um, you know, fortunately for me, the enough uh, of those red flags kind of got stomped down early enough in the approach that I kept going with it. And, um, you know, then it became kind of I'm just I'm a curious person to begin with. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I do the ultra marathon stuff, too. So that that type of my that personality trait I think carried over into nutrition. And, you know, I started listening to tons of podcasts and then researching stuff, reading a bunch of the like the sources that they cited in the podcasts and articles and you know, started following like a lot of the, you know, the early adopters, I guess, into the high fat approach. And I was fortunate I got to meet Dr. Finney and Dr. Volek at an early date. And, you know, those guys were um, kind of what I considered the the science behind the madness, I guess. And, um, you know, they've definitely been helpful and been guys I've been able to bounce questions off when. Yeah, you were in their study, weren't you? They did, they yeah. did that faster study in what, 2014 or something like that? What year yep. did that come out? Yeah, it was in, they did the study in the spring of 2014. And it probably started kind of um, coming out around the end of that year or so. But so tell, tell me a little bit about how'd that go? I mean, no, they were looking at, uh, they try to aid, they try to match two groups of carb, high carb and low, low carb guys. And they were all like, pretty good high-level athletes that they were, had a run for three or four hours on a treadmill and they yeah. were checking performance and glycogen. Mm -hmm. what, what was that experience like and what did you guys find from that? Yeah, it was it was fascinating. Uh, you know, the, the general protocol was that they wanted to get, um, I think what they termed as elite ultra-marathon athletes because they what they wanted to make sure they had accounted for was that um, peak fat metabolizing rate had been reached through training stimulus. So they picked guys who had been doing it for a while and had like been training hard and high mileage enough that, you know, it was it could stand to reason that they had peaked their fat metabolizing rate through exercise about as much as they could individually. So then they just picked two different cohorts, a high fat and a low and a low or a high fat and a high carb cohort. Um, I think it was 10 of each. And then they 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 paired you with what they called their twin, which was someone who had like um, kind of similar performances uh, as as you did, and then they looked at different different metrics along the way. And you know, one that I found kind of fascinating was the you know the rate of fat, the, the max fat oxidation rates. Um, you know, mine personally came out to I think 1.56 grams per minute. Um, and if you look at the literature before then, it was like if you were an outlier, you were maybe doing 1.0. And so I was, you know, 50% higher than wow. the outlier and I wasn't the highest. There was guys who were like 1.7, 1.8, you know, so it was like, you know, pretty eye opening that nutrition plays a pretty big role in that. And, um, you know, it's, there's only so much you can do with one study. We did, we did a three hour treadmill session where they got a lot of that data from. Um, I think where that study needs to be built off of would be a real good performance study where you have a similar scenario of guys who've been doing, you know, a high fat approach 
for you know a couple of years as opposed to three or four weeks and then you know the same same scenario with the high carb guys and kind of see what's going on there see what's different and you know not necessarily to necessarily not necessarily to pinpoint this approach is better than that approach or because that's where i think some of this goes awry is trying to pit one against the other it's more like let's take these individuals and find out well with this person you know given all these other variables that are individual or specific to them as an individual you know what approach is going to work best for them well i mean like i said you broke you broke a world record so i mean that to me indicates that that's a pretty good approach for at least for you and i think that's you know i think you know people that argue that it's not a good approach where you have somebody that's well you have two people in the room that have broken world records <laughs> you know using a, a, a similar approach and so i think to me that says at least that has merit for certain certain people so i think that's interesting uh, what did they i mean did you guys get paid to be in that study or how did they, how did they recruit you guys i mean what 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 enticed you to go into the study i mean were they give you a little money or yeah, something or yeah <laughs> it was like, uh uh, they gave us, I think they paid us to some degree. I can't remember how much it was, but it was like, um, it was, it was a small enough amount that you had to still be interested in kind of going through the process. Cause there's, man, I'll tell you the, the fat biopsies and the muscle bi not so the muscle biopsies were, um, who you felt those for a couple of days afterwards. <laughs> so, big, big old needle, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah. take a chunk of that out of you and you're, it, it feels like it's like, needle stabbing your your muscle for a few days after that when you try running or moving around on it a little bit um but yeah there was a i think a small stipend and then you know they accommodated our flights and things like that to make sure that you know we weren't uh, it was basically enough to cover like whatever you would have lost from taking off work for three or four days to kind of you know make the trip out there and stuff and you know like i said before i'm super curious about this stuff so when they asked me to go i was like just tell me when and where <laughs> um but yeah so i hope that they kind of continue along that way. I know, um, you know, Dr. Volokh was, was a huge uh, player in that study and he's very much got kind of his feet in a few different worlds with the high fat approach. He's very much, you know, deep into looking at the health benefits for like type two diabetics, epileptic seizures and that sort of thing as well. And then, you know, along with guys like uh, Dr. Dominic D'Agostino looking at where the benefits are with cancer research and prevention and uh, maintenance type things. Uh, are probably you know more 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 important areas to explore but then you know there's always going to be that performance side of things where humans are very curious about performance it's why we all tune in the olympics every every well, four years I, think, stuff like I that. think that's one of the neat things that you have these people that are willing to push their bodies to the extreme to be the guinea pigs you know because mm -hmm. uh you know it's, it's tough to um, it's tough to get a study funded where you're going to tell everybody to go run 100 miles because people don't do it voluntarily. You're not going to get a bunch of randomized controlled volunteers to run 100 miles. The guys that are wanting to do that uh -huh. by themselves that are pushing this physiology. I think we can get a lot of a lot of information there. You know, the same thing we talked about earlier. You know, unfortunately, war. You know, some of the some of the medical lessons we learned from combat and stuff like that have advanced the science. So we have to have these extreme outlier crazy events that you know increase the knowledge and so some of the stuff you're doing some of the stuff i'm doing is really on the edge and, and it's it's answering questions it's raising more it's obviously raising more questions than answers in some cases which i think is, is pretty fascinating stuff right and i think that's where it can be a sticking point for some people too is they they you know they spent years and years in school like learning all the information and learning all the like this is what's worked for the elites for the best of the best the tip of the spear and um you know there's there and, and that's great i think you know there's always stepping stones towards finding out what actually is ideal and who knows if we'll ever find out exactly what's ideal um probably won't for everyone 
but you know, to close that door, close that mind and say like, oh yeah, we're here, we figured it out. You know, this is already, it's already the, you know, been established that this approach works. This is what you got to do if you want to get there. Um, no exceptions. That's kind of, I think, uh, a step backwards as opposed to a step forwards and asking questions, trying new things is, is I think the way to kind of find your own health and find your own approach that's going to work best for you. Do you, let me, cause I'll, I know what I do, but I want to see what, I'm kind of interested in what you do. Cause you, you know, I'm sure you have some rivals in the sport. I would assume, right? Sure. I mean, you got people, you got compet. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you motivate yourself to, 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 to improve, to, to better? Do you use those rivals as a focus? Is it all internal? Is it only you're competing with yourself, or do you focus some of your attention against these other people? Just to, what I do is I make a bad guy. I, I don't care if they're the nicest guy in the world. When I'm competing against them, I, I want to not like them. Just, just to drive me to, to, to try to better myself and, and you know whatever whatever it takes you know they're they're cheating they're on drugs they're they're assholes you know whatever even if it's not true in yeah. my mind it is just because i want to beat them and so uh, do you go through anything like that or, i mean not 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 to call any rivals my name but i mean is there something that that you focus is it external or is it all internal or what where 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 is the focus that drives you to to, to keep improving excelling and pushing yourself yeah you know i think it's a, a little bit of a mix uh like the community in ultra marathon running is pretty unique in that like you know it's it's really hard to find like real like heated uh hatred <laughs> um you know people are pretty uh accepting and pretty like uh um inviting with the sport and like congratulatory when you do something well and vice versa so I probably skew further towards like, you know, driving that type of thing from, from within. But, you know, with that said, you know, on race day, if you're, if you're at a race, so every race is different, you know, sometimes these track event things, a lot of times I'm running against a, a standard that had been set years ago, as opposed to a person on the track with me. So then it's like to, to find that outward motivation, you're, you're targeting someone who was there before and did it before and stuff like that, as opposed to an actual physical presence. But there's also, tons of the majority of events where you are competing with other, with other folks. And, you know, then it is, you know, you, you're definitely, that, that just introduces another dynamic, I think, where like you can't control what they're going to do. So like you have to make decisions on the fly a little more as to like, well, do I, do I match that move and potentially pay for it later? Or do I let them go and assume that they're going to, that they just made a mistake by going too fast too early and they'll come back to me. And, I think that has kind of a cool dynamic and that's where the intrigue for me is to jump into some races that are like that have competition as opposed to like these um, chasing ghosts type of scenarios where you're chasing a time that was set, you know, decades ago. Yeah. I wonder, I, I just kind of wonder if it, if it's, if it's kind of sports specific, if it's, you know, sort of like, you know, you, if you look at like what's popular now is like uh, mixed martial arts. Yeah. And those guys, I mean, at least by listening to them, it sounds like they hate each other. Yeah. And I think they have to. I mean, I think they yeah. have to, you know, just build up that that bad guy in their mind. Mm -hmm. They're going to kill this person. They hate him. They're the worst person in the world. Well, you, a lot of it's bluster and showmanship and trying to sell sure. tickets. But at the same time, I think mentally, and it may have to do with contact sports or different types of sports or, or just the different people that are drawn to different different types of sports. So it'd be interesting to talk to other people, you know, because I know what my mentality is. And I, and I compete in a, in a more... In a, in a more aggressive distance, I guess, and yours is more of a uh, finesse, more of a 
you know, steady, 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 and don't wear out. And, and so it, I think maybe that maybe there's something to that. It'd be interesting to talk to more folks and see yeah what their what their thoughts are on that sort of I, stuff. I think some of it too is like it's kind of like what I said earlier with variables being weighted differently depending on the events and depending on like the 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 way things are structured. You get a sport like mixed martial arts where you're physically trying to make this person give up, like with your fists and your feet and whatnot. So that I think the variable there to hate your opponent or to at least create like this idea in your mind that you hate your opponent becomes much more necessary. Whereas you get these like uh, lower impact sports from the sense of like, you're not trying to beat the other person's head in, but you're trying to outperform them physically from like just moving your body. Then it's that variable is very much still there, but not necessarily to the same degree or to the same like um, angle as it would maybe be in like a, in like a fighting sports or a real explosive short, short uh time. Like football or yeah track sprinter or stuff like mm-hmm. that i wonder um so let, let me ask because because as, as you know and most people that know me you know my thing is i i pursue a carnivorous diet i know you've played a little with that mm-hmm. and, and particularly with regards to recovery i know we talked about after a 100 mile race you're beat up you're swollen you can't walk tell me what's been going on that you've tried out you know using carnivory or carnivorous mm-hmm. diet for 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 recovery how's that been working for you yeah, it was it was super interesting to me, and you know, mainly from following you. Uh, but you know, for me, for one of the things that was pretty eye-opening with just like the ketogenic approach was what I would do is after a race, I would go straight ketosis, like pretty strict that 50 gram or less per day type of a protocol. Um, and what I noticed was I tended to get that inflammation out quicker, and I could get back to regular training a little quicker. The way I kind of describe it is when I was high carb. Um, the two weeks after the a race, I could probably start running again after three or four days, but then it was just like, kind of like, like real, real, like, like kind of lazy running, I guess I wouldn't even think about doing a workout for a couple of weeks. Whereas when I went like real low carb right after I it would take me a few days to kind of get that muscle soreness out. Um, but then when I did start training again, I seemed like I could start really training pretty much right away. So I kind of closed that window down. So for me, when I kind of started exploring your approach with the carnivore style, it was almost like just taking the whole ketogenic style one step further and just focusing on that one group of foods, the you know the meats and stuff. And uh, you know I've been playing around with that uh, a fair bit since around December, whether it's after a race or after a really big training block where I'm going to take what I call like a deload week, where the intensity and the volume drop significantly from what I'm normally doing, and you know spending anywhere from three to maybe eight or nine days. Uh, just pure carnivore, and uh, you know I've noticed that it, the, the, the swelling and the inflammation is like it's almost like it's another step forward, uh, at least for me. So like uh, it's something I'm gonna play around with more. Uh, I think it's gonna be kind of a staple in my recovery side of things going forward, and then it'll just be for me the next question is like, well, where else can I potentially use it, or like where can I fit it into a big training block to kind of help out with those things as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, because we've been told by, you know, certain groups that meat is really highly inflammatory, but what I'm experiencing and, and what you seem to be experiencing, what I've seen with a lot of other people is their, their clinical inflammation goes away pretty well. And, we, and we're mm-hmm. seeing corroborating evidence with that with, with some of the lab guys. We're seeing people with really low C-reactive protein. So there may be something to that as far as a recovery and decreasing inflammation size. So that might be a, you know, for people that don't want to do it full time like I do, but they may want to just, throw it in there as a recovery tool, which I think mm-hmm. is a kind of a neat, you know, lots of neat things that are out there to explore. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, some people get into it because out of necessity, like you know, you read stories of folks who, you know, they're they're just they're miserable with their health, and it's affecting their their enjoyment of life. And it's like, it, you know, the the thing that I always find kind of kind of funny is when someone says, "Well, how do you how do you just do that or just eat that?" And like, you're focusing on what you can't have as opposed to what you can have. So when you focus on what you can have and then you focus on what that's doing for you, then um, it's kind of a you, you kind of change your mindset to some degree. So, you know, someone who goes from feeling miserable, having a hard time sleeping, like chronic inflammation, and then all of a sudden that stuff goes away, like the enjoyment of the rest of their life and their productivity increases like you, you, you could they, they, they find it just like almost just as astonishing that someone would not make that change in order to feel that way. And, um, but everyone comes to that at a different time. And, you know, some people tend to be more robust than others with that and, and, uh, never find that spot. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I think providing a lot of tools for people to kind of use and find what works for them is, is where we should head as opposed to saying like, well, this is the right way for everyone, or this is the wrong way. This is going to kill you. This is bad. You know, that type of stuff. You know, that, I think that's heading in the wrong direction. I think, you know, just going back to the physiology of beating yourself up over a hundred miles or, or 50 miles or that, that really is like some of the normal day to day, you know, a year's worth of living almost. And so you're packing your, or, or maybe a few months worth of mm-hmm. pounding and you're packing that all into a half a day or a day's journey. And so I think, you know, you get that, you know, rapid relief for that. It's almost like you're, 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 you've aged yourself 20 years for, for a brief period of time. You get to feel what that feels like, and then you can get rid of it real quick. And I think that's mm-hmm. why we have a lot of these older people that have medical problems, diseases, arthritis, inflammation, that, that, that helps in the same way. So you're kind of like compressing everything together just by that crazy stuff, that crazy hundred mile stuff you do that I still can't wrap my head, head around, you know, I just, I just, it's, it's just amazing to me. What, uh, I'm trying to think uh, what are the topics we should cover on this one. Is there anything else we need to talk about this one, or you think there's anything else you want to talk about? Uh, you know, I think we we laid out a pretty good intro to kind of what I'm about and you know where where I'm coming from and stuff. So uh, you know, I think we'll we'll probably do deeper dives in some of the specific areas as we kind of roll out more episodes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, like we mentioned in the introductory podcast, definitely reach out. To, to me or Sean if you have any questions about this stuff and um, you know certainly send over specific questions you might want addressed and we'll we'll try to put together some kind of neat little nicely packaged Q&A type episodes down the road to 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 really address some of what is interesting you the most sounds good yeah so HBO human performance outlier podcast um, Submit your questions, send, send what you want to hear, send what you want to hear, hear us talk about, and uh, any potential guests you think might be interesting, we'll see if we can get a hold of them um, and bring them on. All right, guys, take care and have a good, uh, good day. All right, yes, yeah, stay tuned for episode three where we meet Dr. Sean Baker. Hey, folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at z-b-i-t-t-e-r. And you can find Sean 
at sbakermd, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R-1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.